This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor claims any effort by the Biden administration to impose travel limits to prevent the spread of the UK version of COVID-19 would be a direct attack on Florida. Restricting the right of Americans to travel freely throughout our country while allowing illegal aliens to pour across the southern border unmolested would be a ridiculous but very damaging farce. So we will oppose it 100%. It would not be based in science. It would purely be a political attack against the people of Florida. The governor was asked about the threat of the UK variant Wednesday and the possibility it was spread during crowded Super Bowl parties last weekend. DeSantis responded by attacking the media. The media is worried about that, obviously. You guys really love that. Uh, you don't care as much if it's a, quote, peaceful protest, and then it's fine. You don't care as much if they're celebrating a Biden election. You only care about if it's people that you don't like. For the record, the Sunrise podcast does indeed care about the spread of the UK variant, but we reject the governor's assertion that the media only cares when it's someone we don't like. Bucks fans are some of my favorite people, including a daughter, a son-in-law, and two grandsons who live in St. Pete. The Speaker of the Florida House is asking school superintendents to track down the 88,000 kids who were missing from schools when they counted all their students in October. If they can't find those kids, it may cost the schools about $700 million. It's been almost a year since the pandemic began, and the people who run the food banks in Florida say they are still being slammed. We've seen in our distributions is really twice as many neighbors calling on us, folks who have never been in a food line before needing help. Pre-COVID, we were serving about 170 households per day on a busy day in our food pantry. We are right. still serving an average of 350 households per day today. They're seeing really double the number of folks come in for assistance that came in, you know, only a year ago. It may take as long as five years for the hardest hit families to recover. Congressman Charlie Crist is promising to do what he can to get more federal help for the food banks. Remember the controversy about all those rape kits that sat on shelves for years without being tested? Florida lawmakers dealt with it five years ago, but didn't go far enough. And that is where Gail's law comes in. The survivors definitely have a right to know. And at this point, they have not been notified. And no victim of sexual assault should have to watch their attacker escape justice because evidence was mishandled or, or not processed timely. Nobody should have their, their sexual assault kit sitting on a shelf. We'll also have your calendar of events and the story of a Florida man accused of stealing rings from a girlfriend so he could ask another woman to marry him. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, February 12th. On this date in 1999, U.S. President Bill Clinton was acquitted by the Senate in his impeachment trial. In 1994, The Scream by Norwegian painter Edvard Munch was stolen in Oslo. It was recovered three months later. Today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, Darwin Day, National Freedom to Marry Day, National Plum Pudding Day, and it's the start of the Chinese New Year. 2021 is the Year of the Ox. Governor Ron DeSantis is fuming over a report in the Miami Herald that the White House is considering new restrictions on domestic travel to try to stop the spread of the UK variant of COVID-19. The Biden administration is worried this new variant could set back the fight against the virus, but DeSantis responded with a rant accusing the administration of picking on Florida for purely political reasons. There was some type of report about potential travel restrictions on Americans and on Floridians, uh, and I just, I think it's an absurd report uh, that they would be doing that. I think it would be unconstitutional, it would be unwise, and it would be unjust. And if you think about it, 
restricting the right of Americans to travel freely throughout our country while allowing illegal aliens to pour across the southern border unmolested would be a ridiculous but very damaging farce. So we will oppose it 100%. It would not be based in science. It would purely be a political attack against the people of Florida. And it's unclear why they would even try talking about that. Uh, just look at the COVID situation in the state of Florida. So since December, the last couple months, Florida's per cases per capita compared to the rest of the country, 28th. 27 other states higher per capita cases. And for the, bulk, for the entire pandemic, it's a similar story. Fatalities per capita for this same period, Florida ranks 42nd. 41 states have higher per capita fatality. So since December 1st, uh, well over half the country has seen much worse COVID results uh, than here in Florida. But all you have to do too is just look at some of the trends. ED visits for COVID-like illness is down 60% in Florida over the last 30 days. That's the number one indicator uh, for, for COVID spread. And so any attempt to restrict or lock down Florida by the federal government uh, would be an attack on our state uh, done purely for political purposes. We will not back down. And if anyone tries to, uh, to harm Floridians or target us, uh, you know, we, will, we will respond very swiftly. What DeSantis did not say is that Florida has more cases of the UK variant than any other state in the country. And discussions over potential travel restrictions do not target a specific state. The focus is how to stop the spread of the variants that appear to be surging in a number of states. The governor was asked about the UK variant Wednesday in Venice and whether he was concerned it was spread at all those mask-free Super Bowl parties last weekend. DeSantis responded by trashing the media, which has become standard operating procedure for the governor when he doesn't like the question. The media is worried about that, obviously. You guys really love that. Uh, you don't care as much if it's a, quote, peaceful protest, and then it's fine. You don't care as much if they're celebrating a Biden election. You only care about if it's people that you don't like. So I'm a Bucks fan. I'm damn proud of what they did on Sunday night. And so in terms of the UK variant, here's what we know. We know based on all the, the evidence that these vaccines are going to be effective against that. And that's really the, the, the main concern. I mean, we're getting our seniors vaccinated. Uh, we've not seen any data or any evidence to suggest that these vaccines uh, are not effective. And so if we get the seniors vaccinated, we're gonna be good uh, and that's what we're gonna do. If there's data that comes out, not an academic model from Neil, Neil Ferguson, but actual data that comes out um, that we should, uh, let people know about or that should change the approach of vaccine or any of that. Obviously, you're going to follow follow that and see. But I could tell you most of what I've seen about it has been more based on modeling rather than based on actual evidence. And um, again, the vaccines, uh, there's not been any problem demonstrated with the vaccines. And so that was my main concern with it. And I think we're going to be in good shape there. If something changes, we will let you know. The governor went to the Kingsgate community in Charlotte County Thursday to announce the opening of a new vaccination center where they're offering 3,000 shots over three days. He also said they'll be expanding the program, offering vaccinations to homebound seniors. The first group selected for the homebound vaccination program was Holocaust survivors. Next came veterans of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. Now he's offering shots at home for U.S. veterans of Korea and World War II. 
I directed the Department of Health and the Division of Emergency Management to coordinate with the Florida Department of Veterans Affairs to identify veterans of World War II and the Korean War who are not able to travel to receive a vaccine. And in fact, we were able to kick off this new effort this morning right here in Kingsgate with Kingsgate resident, 94-year-old Captain John Ahrens. Captain Ahrens is a military Mustang. He started as an enlisted uh, seaman in the Merchant Marine back in World War II. He served in the military for 37 years. He served in World War II. He served in Korea. He served in Vietnam. And he also served in the Persian Gulf. It was great to spend time with him. We were able to have uh, EMTs there vaccinating him and his wife. And we think that there are about 30,000 veterans of World War II and 100,000 veterans of the Korean War currently living in Florida. Now, many of them are able to, to get around, and quite frankly, John is in pretty good shape too, particularly for 94, uh, but you have some that, that may not be able to do that. They put their lives on the line for our country, and we need to be there for them, and if that means devote these resources on an expeditionary basis, we're gonna do that. So we've leveraged our connections with veteran service organizations, the Florida Veterans Council, and other groups that serve veterans throughout the state. Um, and we're gonna work to make sure these veterans get vaccinated. And so you can actually go to a website, www.floridavets.org backslash homebound veterans for more information. And as we get more requests, then we'll be able to devote more resources to those requests. Who's on deck after Holocaust survivors, Bay of Pigs veterans, and World War II vets? We can only imagine the next group that will be selected for the governor's feel-good vaccination campaign. The state health department reported more than 8,500 new cases of COVID Thursday and 180 additional fatalities. Our death toll has reached 28,871, which means there's a pretty good chance we'll pass the 29,000 mark when the stats are updated today. Florida set a record in January with the most fatalities reported in a single month, the average 160 per day. But we could break that record this month. More than 1,900 deaths have already been reported so far in February. That's an average of 173 per day. Now, the total number of infections here is more than 1,800,000, but the number of infections has been declining over the past couple of weeks. The COVID crisis is not just a health issue, it's a financial one. And the people who run Florida's food banks say they're seeing a lot of folks who never needed help before. Mandy Cloninger with Feeding Tampa Bay says they're seeing twice as many people now than before the pandemic and more families with hungry kids. We've been talking about the Super Bowl a lot this past week, right? And we normally yeah. talk about the need for hunger in terms of there's normally 10 Raymond James stadiums filled with hungry people. But you throw in a pandemic and it's nearly yeah. double that need. We've seen in our distributions is really twice as many neighbors calling on us, folks who have never been in a food line before needing help. And we hear from them time and time again that they're used to donating food to food drives versus being um, in a place to have to ask for services. And from a policy perspective, we really want to position not only that food for today, which is serious investments in the food banking network, both from a state and a federal perspective, because we can't do this work alone, especially when the need has grown. This is a historic level of need. So we really do need funding to help increase the food that we're able to provide for today. And that's USDA, that's TFAP, that's 
access to nutritious food that supports Florida farmers and retailers. We do believe that you really need to extend the SNAP benefit boost um, that's been at 15% to address that increased need and to address the fact that grocery store prices are higher. We're all feeling that. Pandemic EBT helps immensely. The child nutrition program waivers help immensely. Expanding child tax credits and earned income tax credits can help those with the lowest incomes. And then lastly, as we think about not only food for today and food for tomorrow, but food for a lifetime, we need increased support for workforce development. We know if we can improve health and capability for our neighbors, that's going to help them achieve their own self-sufficiency. Beth Houghton runs the Juvenile Welfare Board of Pinellas County. Providing food used to be a small part of their mission, but that was before the pandemic. They're seeing really double the number of folks come in for assistance that came in, you know, only a year ago. We, of course, focus on families with children at the JWB. It doesn't mean there aren't a whole lot of other very hungry people, but that's our focus, and it is by statute. We do a lot of other things. Um, so food is, a, frankly, a smaller part of, of our whole portfolio, but we're well aware that uh, if kids and families don't have food, uh, stress goes up uh, and abuse and neglect ensues. We're well aware that if kids aren't, aren't eating, they're not doing well in school. So there are direct lines to all of those things if, if we don't take care of food. Th- this is one of the most uh, pressing issues for the families that we serve. Jennifer Yeagley is CEO of the St. Petersburg Free Clinic, which offers assistance with food, shelter, and health care. And they've seen the same increase in demand during the pandemic. We are seeing every day a line of cars in our now outdoor food pantry stretch down 3rd Avenue and often down Central. Um, Pre-COVID, we were serving about 170 households per day on a busy day in our food pantry, We are still serving an average of 350 households per day today. And the number of families we're serving has more than doubled. So pre-COVID, about 20% of the the households coming through our food pantry were families with children. We're now up to about 55%. We're seeing a huge increase in number of folks who had never visited a food pantry before. Uh, So over 50% of those we're seeing today had never had to avail themselves of emergency food. And that falls right in with the data that United Way has put out around what we all know to be the Alice population, that group of folks who are one paycheck away from real financial crisis. And because of COVID, many lost their jobs, they lost wages, they were furloughed. They're still experiencing that economic crisis and are still needing to make their way to food pantries, to places for utilities assistance, water assistance. They're, of course, worried about being evicted. And so all of these basic needs continue to really be in peril for so many families. And so when we think about the continuing need of the communities that we serve, um, we know that this is going to be the population that is going to also take the longest to recover from COVID. We're looking at a five-year recovery potentially um, Mm -hmm. in terms of folks being back to where they were pre-COVID for the communities that we're serving. Congressman Charlie Crist of St. Petersburg hosted this discussion about feeding Floridians and says he'll do what he can to get more federal support for the food banks. 
The Speaker of the Florida House is asking school superintendents to figure out where all the kids have gone. When they counted up all the students in classrooms and on remote learning back in October, almost 88,000 were missing. That's about 3%. In a letter to the superintendents, Speaker Chris Sprouls strongly encouraged them to work with every available state and local resource, including social service agencies and law enforcement, to locate the missing children and make sure they are properly enrolled, saying, quote, we have a moral obligation not to allow any of these children to slip through the cracks in the system. If they can't find those kids, it'll cost the schools about $700 million because state funding is based on the number of students enrolled. Next up on Sunrise, the story of Gail's Law, which was inspired by the case of an Orlando woman whose rape kit sat on a shelf for 32 years. But first, a message from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to Sunrise. One of the best tools to track down a rapist is DNA, and authorities use what's known as rape kits to collect that DNA evidence from the victims. That's how it works in theory, anyway. In reality, those kits can sit on a shelf for years without ever being analyzed. Now, five years ago, the legislature passed a bill that requires law enforcement agencies to submit rape kits for testing within 30 days, and all kits have to be tested within 120 days after it's received by a lab. But Senator Linda Stewart of Orlando says that's really not enough. She's filed a bill called Gale's Law that would provide sexual assault survivors tracking information for their kits and would give the state up to 180 days to notify survivors if there are results. The survivors definitely have a right to know. And at this point, they have not been notified. Now, we did a good deed in 2016 when we had 8,000 rape kits sitting on a shelf and we, they were told they had to clear them out, which they did. Uh, but we, what we have is little steps moving forward when we find something that might that really needs to be corrected. And this law is one of those uh, situations, a step FDLE is going to be required to create a statewide uh, system for tracking the sexual assault evidence kits. And right now you might have a rape kit down in Miami and you have one in Orlando and you have one in Jacksonville and uh, they're not uh, having one central location. And I think if we had them all centrally located when the kits come in, uh, we can uh, let the survivor know the status of uh, the kit. They, you know, we found a match. We haven't found a match. We, um, you know, have, we found other people that have this, the DNA has been discovered in other areas that perhaps this uh, person, this perpetrator has not only violated you, but he's he or she could be violating a lot of different people. And so this brings this clarity into focus. I can't imagine being in a situation where you have been violated. You do, you do what is required of you by giving a test and then never hearing a word, never knowing, you know, well, what happened to it? You know, nobody contacting anybody. And I think that that's the next step that we are taking here is allowing the survivors to know what the status is of their um, rape. And I think that will be somewhat um, comforting. I hope that that would be comforting for those that have had to go through this horrible situation. Representative Emily Slosberg of Boca Raton has filed the House version of Gail's Law. 
this will ensure accountability. This House Bill 673 on the House side, Gail's Law, will ensure accountability um, for these rape kits, the timelines associated with the rape kits, and give access to, to these survivors of sexual assault. You know, every year, Florida Department of Law Enforcement and local crime labs around the state receive thousands of sexual assault kits for processing. However, there's no centralized method for tracking the location or processing um, the status of these sexual assault kits. And no victim of sexual assault should have to watch their attacker escape justice because evidence was mishandled or, or not processed timely. Nobody should have their, their sexual assault kits sitting on a shelf for so many years. You know, this will ensure that victims are not re-victimized. They're calling this Gail's Law in honor of Gail Gardner, a minister, counselor, and sexual assault survivor from Orlando. She was attacked in 1988, and her rape kit sat on a shelf for 32 years. When they finally tested it, Gardner learned her attacker was already in jail and had been tied to two dozen rapes. Your calendar of events, the State Acquisition and Restoration Council, which works on land acquisition and management issues, meets online at 9. The Florida Board of Clinical Laboratory Personnel meets by conference call at 9. The House Education Chairman, Chris Latvala of Clearwater, will talk about education issues during an online event at 10. The Miami Refugee Task Force meets online at 10. And the State Medical Examiners Commission meets at 10 in Lake Mary. Finally today, a Florida man sporting a tattoo that reads, Only God Can Judge Me, is accused of stealing engagement and wedding rings from his girlfriend to propose to another woman. Volusia County deputies say 48-year-old Joseph Davis was dating women in Orange City and Orlando. When the girlfriend in Orange City learned he was engaged to another woman, she checked out her Facebook page and noticed she was wearing rings that were identical to her own from a previous marriage. Then she checked her jewelry box and discovered both rings and several pieces of jewelry were missing. So she contacted the fiancé. The two women teamed up and they turned him in. The fiancé also discovered a laptop computer and jewelry were missing after he moved out. Deputies are still looking for the dude. Davis has a record of felony convictions in Oregon and North Carolina and has active arrest warrants in Oregon and now Florida. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee. We're off Monday for the holiday, but you're invited to join us again Tuesday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.